I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, this is Classics Unlocked a program brought to you by Universal Music and Classics Direct. I'm Graham Abbott. This program looks at two beautiful English works from the first half of the 20th century which evoke the spirit of Christmas and which are inspired by seasonal carols and poetry. Today we associate the term carol exclusively with Christmas, but in earlier times, the term was used to denote any seasonally appropriate song for Christmas, Passiontide, Easter, whatever. And despite the religious seasons to which they were attached, many carols had secular origins, either as dances or as secular songs which were adapted by having sacred words added to familiar tunes. The two composers whose music we'll hear in this program represent two generations of English music. Later, Rafe Vaughan Williams. But we start with the younger composer, Benjamin Britten. In April 1939, aged 25, Britten left England to go to North America. He travelled with the tenor Peter Pears, who was to become his lover and lifelong partner while they were away. Three years later, in 1942 and in the midst of the Second World War, they returned to their homeland and, as pacifists and conscientious objectors, an uncertain future. Britain had matured enormously while in North America. On the sea voyage home, he wrote two choral works which seem to reflect a return to his roots and which are to this day among his most popular works. One was the virtuoso a cappella Auden setting, A Hymn to St. Cecilia. The other was a work for three-part treble voices and harp, A Ceremony of Carols. While in the Canadian city of Halifax, Nova Scotia, a city which has remarkable physical affinities with the East Anglian coast of Britain's childhood, he bought an anthology called The English Galaxy of Shorter Poems. The verses in it are in Middle English and Early Modern English, and this was the source for the texts set to music in A Ceremony of Carols. Britain also had with him on the ship two books on harp technique, which he used to ensure he wrote accurately and creatively for the instrument. When Britain and Piers arrived back in England, a ceremony of carols was still just a collection of standalone pieces. The procession and recession which opened and closed the work were added later. But even these standalone pieces have a logical flow and a dramatic thrust which is magnificent. The text of the procession, the antiphon to the Magnificat at Second Vespers for Christmas, begins Hodie Christus Natus Est, Today Christ is Born.
After this opening unaccompanied unison chant, the brilliance of the harp and the three-part harmony of the treble voices is dazzling with the first carol, Walcum Yol. Even in the archaic English of the title, this movement is an obvious welcome to the festivities, both sacred and worldly. One of the better-known early English poems relating to Christmas is set in the second carol. There is no rose of such virtue as is the rose that bore Jesus. The image of Mary rocking her infant son is immediately suggested by the bass line of the harp, while the text mixes Latin phrases from the liturgy into the description of the scene. Thank you. 
The next two carols are connected in Britain's numbering scheme as 4A and 4B. Both are lullabies. The opening of That Younger Child shows the composer keenly aware of the harp's specialised tuning, with the first two notes of subtly different pitch being played across two different strings, a musical description of the horse nightingale referred to in the text. We also hear a solo voice for the first time here, a reflection of Britain's unerring sense of colour and variety of texture, even in this relatively early part of his career. The second lullaby, Balulalo, changes texture again, contrasting solo and tutti voices. The harp here, with its descending patterns, again suggests the rocking of the child's cradle. The constant alternation between minor and major, as well as the conflict between simple time in the harp and compound time in the voices, adds a disturbing element to the piece, perhaps presaging the slaughter of the innocents. Thank you. 
And then, with perfect dramatic timing, the intimate, inward-looking lullabies are swept away with the extrovert joy of As Due in April. Throughout the carols, Britain is also very subtly introducing more and more imitation among the voice parts. At the end of Bululalo, the lower voices imitated the upper line. Now, in As Due in April, the imitation is more intense, suggesting a strict canon or a round. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Right on cue, the introduction of elements suggesting canon in the previous two carols reached their fulfilment in the next, This Little Babe. The text speaks of the battle between the infant Christ and Satan himself, and the unrelenting minor key tonality of the piece suggests the seriousness of the fight. The first verse is sung in unison. The second is heard in strict two-part canon, with the parts one beat apart. Then in the third verse, the canon is in three parts, again with each one beat apart. Britain understood that this was difficult, but not impossible, and knew that the choir of children he envisaged for the piece would have great fun making this work. Choirs the world over have proved him right ever since. In the final verse, the three parts come together in close harmony, ending in triumph. Thank you. 
We're now a little past the halfway point in Britain's ingenious cycle, and it is a cycle rather than just a collection, given the clear line of musical development which is discernible as the work progresses. It's at this point that the endless variety of textures changes yet again, with a gentle interlude for the harp alone. This delicate masterpiece helps unify a ceremony of carols, as it's largely a free fantasia based on the music of the procession which opened the work, and which we'll hear again at the end.
The delicacy of the end of the interlude perfectly sets up the next carol in freezing winter night. The icy trills in the harp support the ever-widening spans of the voice parts as they describe the humble birth of the Christ child. This wintry landscape is followed by the warmer sounds of a spring carol. In this, the joy of new life, new growth and new hope is evident in every bar. On a purely musical level, the spring carol, an example of a carol for a season other than Christmas, provides yet another new musical texture, a duet for solo voices. Thank you. 
The first section of A Ceremony of Carols, before the harp interlude, ended with the stern minor key, This Little Babe. Now the final carol in the work inhabits a similar mood and mode. Deo gratias, meaning thanks be to God, is mostly in English, setting the text Adam lay ibounden, describing mankind's fall. And like this little babe, Deo gratias indulges in canon at the end in the final utterances of those Latin words. After this, Britain's little masterpiece ends with the recession. This is the same music which was sung in the opening procession, but of course here the choir leaves, with the radiant sounds fading into the distance. And so ends Britain's A Ceremony of Carols. Britain himself conducted the first performance of the final version of A Ceremony of Carols at Wigmore Hall in London in December 1943, a little over a year and a half after his return from America, with the Morriston Boys Choir and harpist Maria Koczynska. 
The recording I used in this program featured the choir of King's College, Cambridge, in a Decca release. The harpist was Rachel Masters, and the conductor was Stephen Clearbury. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. On his return to England in 1942, Britain was determined, musically speaking, to be the David who would slay Goliath. He was not universally welcomed back from North America by any stretch of the imagination, and he had to earn his stripes doubly by not only overcoming claims of cowardice in leaving the country on the eve of the war, but also by proving his worth as a composer of international status. The Goliath he had to slay, generally speaking, was the British musical establishment, but if there was one person who personified that establishment, it was Rafe Vaughan Williams. Vaughan Williams, more than 40 years older than Britain, was the elder statesman of British music and closely associated with the Royal College of Music, where Britain himself had studied in the 30s. It's no coincidence that the first major project Britain undertook on his return in the early 40s was the composition of his first true opera, Peter Grimes. Opera was the one field in which Vaughan Williams had not had a major success, and it became perhaps the most important area of success for Britain for the rest of his life. Vaughan Williams, despite Britain's protestations, was of course an important composer and a vital figure in British music. His devotion to English folk culture, which involved the transcription of countless folk tunes collected on field trips around the country, and his understanding of the importance of English hymnody to the nation's history and culture make him important quite apart from the beauty of his compositions. Vaughan Williams wrote a number of works inspired by Christmas, the first of which, the Fantasia on Christmas Carols, I want to explore here. Like the better-known orchestral Fantasias, the Fantasia on Greensleeves and the Fantasia on a theme of Thomas Tallis, this takes pre-existing tunes from England's rich cultural past as its starting point. It's quite telling that the piece avoids popular and well-known carols. Rather, he bases the work on lesser-known music for the season, including melodies that he himself had collected on his travels. Ever the educator, Vaughan Williams wanted to expand the horizons of his audiences and not pander to the tried and true. The Fantasia on Christmas Carols was written in 1912 and first performed under the composer's direction at the Three Choirs Festival in Hereford Cathedral that year. It scored for mixed chorus, baritone solo and orchestra, and lasts about 12 minutes. It's in four sections which, unlike the movements in Britain's Ceremony of Carols, are linked and performed without a break. In the first section, Vaughan Williams provides a restrained and beautiful arrangement of This is the Truth Sent From Above. The focus is on the baritone. Apart from one verse, the chorus hums throughout, while the accompaniment is limited to the strings. This is followed by Come All You Worthy Gentlemen. 
Here the whole mood is transformed into something rather more jolly. The rest of the orchestra gets involved, and the carol is sung entirely by the chorus. At the end of this section, as the music dies away after the climax, you might just make out a fragment of the first Noel in the upper orchestral parts. A key change ushers in the third section on Christmas night, introduced by the baritone and supported by the chorus. Then in the fourth and final section, words and music from the second and third sections are combined. The true Fantasia section is crowned with the sound of bells and ends with a hushed wish for a happy new year from the voices. It's a beautiful work and because of the connected nature of each of the sections, I don't want to interrupt it. So here is the Fantasia on Christmas carols by Rafe Vaughan Williams, complete. Alan Harvey is the baritone soloist with the choir of King's College Cambridge and the London Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Sir David Wilcox on a Decca release.
Composed in 1912, that was the Fantasia on Christmas Carols by Rafe Vaughan Williams. Sir David Wilcox conducted the choir of King's College, Cambridge and the London Symphony Orchestra. The baritone soloist was Alan Harvey. My thanks to Tom Ford for the technical production of the programme. This is Graham Abbott wishing you the happiest of holiday seasons, Christmas or otherwise. Catch you next time. <laughs>